fierce, powerful, and very angry. And what does all this tell us about God? Well, I think it tells us at least two things. And the first thing is this, that God's judgment of evil involves punishment. It involves the suffering of the wrongdoer. Now, as soon as I say that, that God actively causes suffering as part of his punishment, I think there's a part of us, there's certainly a part of me, that recoils from that. Some of us here, maybe all of us here to an extent, won't be terribly comfortable with this picture of God. A punishing God who causes suffering as part of judgment seems to paint God almost as primitive or vengeful. It's a concept that certainly seems foreign to much of our culture. I mean, we only need to take maybe our prison system as an example of that. Prisons, or at least in practice, or at least in theory rather, are supposed to be about stopping people from doing crimes again. They're supposed to be about deterring other people from not doing things. They're about rehabilitating people. But punishment, deliberately inflicted suffering, seems savage. And sometimes I think we apply the same reasoning to God. Now, you might find this particularly uncomfortable if you're not a Christian, if you don't identify as a Christian. You actually find the the whole idea rather distasteful about God. In fact, maybe it's even been one of the things that you've heard Christians talk about God's judgment and God's punishment on people, and it actually rather puts you off. But I think it's also true of Christians often, and certainly me. We're happy enough to agree with it on principle. But when we see someone like a Christopher Hitchens or a Richard Dawkins on TV, raise one of the more violent episodes of God's judgment in the Old Testament as an argument against his existence, I think we sometimes feel a bit embarrassed. God does seem like a bit of a savage sometimes. Or maybe we actually just sit down and actually think just for five minutes about what the doctrine of hell actually means, what it actually looks like. And we, we really think to ourselves, we need a bit of stomach to think about that. Is God really right to do that? But I think that Amos makes clear to us, and the Bible more generally, that we don't need to be worried or embarrassed to see God is distasteful. And it's because of this. Punishment is vital to justice. Punishment is vital to justice. Let me give you an example. Imagine a murderer who's been imprisoned for life, who is ticking all of the prison boxes. They're rehabilitating so that they'll never do it again. They're locked up for life, so even if they did want to do it again, they couldn't. And other people, it's been demonstrated, have actively been deterred from committing murders as a result of their incarceration. Now, according to one theory of punishment, the one that leaves out actual suffering... Justice has actually been done. But what if we add just one more feature to this picture? What happens if, even though that person has no intention of doing it again, they're totally unremorseful for what they've done? And they're actually not suffering at all in there. Somehow in their delusion, they actually quite like it. Would we really think that justice had been done there? 
No. I think intuitively we feel, no, it's right for that person to suffer. The person who sits there and laughs at the justice system, even though they're ticking all other sorts of boxes, we don't really think justice has been done. No, punishment is essential for justice. And that includes God's justice. But it's not just essential to main justice for the victims. Slightly more subtly, it's also essential to maintain justice for the perpetrators. You see, because punishment is the only thing that actually links to the, to the crime that's actually been done. All the other things, rehabilitation and keeping them out of harm's way and deterring people from doing things again, they only depend for their effectiveness on what happens in the future. So let me give to you the same scenario, but with a slight tweak. This person who's locked up for murder isn't actually a murderer. He's innocent. He never did it. But as far as the public know, he did, and they've all been deterred from doing murders again. And as far as the public knows, he's being rehabilitated. Well, he doesn't need to be rehabilitated. He hasn't done anything. And he'll never get out of there. He'll never have a chance to commit a murder because he's been detained. So according to that system of justice, all the boxes have been ticked. It's totally fair to keep him locked up. So long as he deters people, so long as he can't do it again, and so long as he doesn't want to, that's fair. But again, intuitively, we go, no, that's wrong, that's unjust. As soon as you take away the punishment from the crime, injustice is possible, in fact, inevitable. Not just to the victim, but to the guilty. Now, I'm not saying that rehabilitation or deterring people or stopping people from doing things again. They're not important elements. I'm just saying they're empty without the heart of justice, which is punishment. God is right to inflict suffering on the nations for what they have done. It's not savage. It's essential. And anything less is less than justice. So God punishes the nations surrounding Israel to defend his integrity. He can't let this sort of thing, these atrocities, happen on his watch. And I think we've got to feel the same way, don't we, when we, when we see similar atrocities in our world. I'm so immune to these things, the injustice in the world. When I see massacres, I see them so often on the news, I begin to, I feel flat. I don't feel anything. And yet surely this reminds me that these perpetrators are people made in the image of God and who are defiling that image by acting as they do. No, we must plead with God, mustn't we, to execute justice upon people, to defend the goodness of his name. But he doesn't just do it to defend the goodness of his name. We see here very clearly in Amos that he does it to vindicate the victims. He justly punishes to defend the weak. So you can see that there in 1 verse 11. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Edom, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. He punishes Edom to vindicate those who they've attacked. But he's totally impartial. Because you only need to go to a few lines further down to chapter 2 verse 1. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Moab, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath, because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. He's totally impartial here. Edom is both victim and perpetrator. 
But God defends both. Isn't that one of the reasons we need to cry out for justice, both vocally and in prayer? Cry out to God for justice in the world so that the weak and oppressed will be defended? Isn't one thing that we should be praying for Zimbabwean farmers and Chinese political prisoners and children who are sexually abused in state care in Armadale that God would call their oppressors to account? Of course we pray that they would come to Christ and know his forgiveness. And we do that first. But if we won't, or if they won't, shouldn't we also pray for their punishment? To pray that they'd be removed from those positions? To pray that they'd be held accountable to do their victims justice? But secondly, and much more briefly, not only is punishment an essential part of God's justice, Totally impartial. Because you notice that all the nations I've mentioned are foreign nations. It's Moab and Ammon and Aram and Phoenicia. It's no one in the family. And yet God is so totally impartial that exactly the same punishment is carried out on Israel's brother, Judah. Let me read to you verses 4 and 5. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because they've rejected the law of the Lord and they have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. No, he's totally impartial. The fact that they have a covenant relationship with God doesn't make any difference. In fact, it rather makes it worse. They should know better. And yet God still punishes them for what they do. You see, sometimes we do get squeamish about God's punishment. I do. And sometimes when I do, I think it's because I think I'm more just, more fair than God is. But when I examine my heart, I don't get squeamish because I'm more just than God. It's because I'm less just than God. I care less about his name than he does. I care less about the weak and the oppressed and the downtrodden than he does. I don't see the sin of sin. If we could only come to recognize just how bad it is, maybe I, maybe we, would look on God's just punishment, not with embarrassment, but with awe and holy fear. Isn't that what we see on the cross? When we see God's justice executed finally on his own son? Doesn't that prove to us that God's punishment demands suffering? As no one suffered more than God himself on that cross. And God's mercy on humanity does not consist in sweeping sin under the carpet, refusing to punish us. No mercy consists in him taking that punishment upon himself so that those who trust in him don't have to suffer it. And for that, we have to be thankful. That brings me to my second, and you'll be thankful, much shorter point. We've dealt with them. And as I'll go on to show, I think we're very good at dealing with them. But now we come to us. Because some of us here are uncomfortable with God's justice. But I think some of us uh, have the opposite issue. We're 
rather too comfortable with God's justice. I reckon the Israelites fell fairly and squarely into this camp. You can imagine them hearing Amos at the start thinking, oh, he's this guy from Judah, he looks like a bit of a hick, he does smell, I really don't know what he's going to have to say, but really warming to him as he came to absolutely smash all their enemies. Maybe this hick's not so bad after all. I mean, just remember, Israel was one of the major victims of all of these nations, including Judah. Amos even dresses it up for them in a really nice poetic way. Have you noticed that all the nations that he says God is going to punish surround Israel? It's almost as if he said, God has taken a rope and he's spread it around your border. And that rope will protect you from all onslaught because God is going to punish them for what they have done. But as soon as we come to 2 verse 6, we see that Israel is in for something of a shock. Because worshipping a totally good, totally impartial God is maybe not all it's cracked up to be if you're also a sinner. If he's going to punish the nations, even Judah for their sin, he's got to punish Israel as well. God's people are not immune from God's justice. And Amos's critique of them is devastating. It follows exactly the same pattern of verdict, charge and sentence. In fact, more space is devoted to their sin than any other nation. Israel comes to the horrifying realisation that the rope that Amos has been spreading around them is not one of protection. It's a noose. Very important for Christians to understand this. We're very good at pointing out the faults of our society, the foreign nations of the secular world or other religions. We're also very good, unfortunately maybe even better, at pointing out the faults of our Christian neighbours, the Judas of our world, the liberals who've given up on the Bible, the Hillsongs who've sold out to popularity, even the dry-as-dust Sydney Anglicans who maybe aren't as funky and edgy as us. We're really good at pointing out other people's faults. It's almost a pastime. And it's when we get into this crusader mode that I think we most delight in Amos's picture of God as a lion, as powerful and mighty and most importantly, on our side. But when we do that, we make a mistake that anyone who I gather has ever handled a lion never makes about lions. We think he's tame. We see God as a lion and we picture him proud and majestic but he's the lion of the zoo standing roaring on his rampart behind three inches of perspex but the god of the bible has fled his pen in fact was never in one the god of the bible is at large and is free to roam where he pleases and the consequences as amos spells out are devastating. As we look at Israel's critique with our hearts in our mouths, we look at ourselves in God's withering blast. You can see it there in verses 6 and 7. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. See, Israel had earned its prosperity on the backs of its workers on the backs of an underclass. 
injustice was rife, almost absurdly so, we think. The needy sold for a pair of sandals. How can a society get so bad that the needy can be sold for a pair of sandals? Well, as you take off your shoes tonight before you go to bed, look at the soles and see where they were made. My pair of Nikes, which was cheap, was cheap because it was not made here. It was made in a sweatshop in a country where they pay very little to their workers and where trade unions are banned. Now, of course, I'm not saying we must all go around barefoot. Of course, we live in a world of injustice. Of course we do. But that doesn't mean we do nothing, does it? That doesn't mean that the call to repentance is a call rather just to do some logical jiggery-pokery where we just say, oh yes, we're all about repentance, but we never end up actually changing. And in the area of social injustice, in a church in Kirribilli, one of the richest suburbs, in the richest city, in one of the richest countries in the world and in the history of the world, if we cannot repent in some area of our life when it comes to finances and the oppression of the market, who can? But sexual impropriety was rampant too. I won't read it to you, but you see there in in 7 and 8, sexual morality had become loose with people visiting shrine prostitutes as a matter of course. And of course that's wrong, but before we go tutting at the world for its sexually explicit billboards or read about yet another minister who's fallen foul of sexual sin and we think to ourselves, oh, that's sad, and we mean it, But if it's a church we don't like very much, we also feel a little bit pleased. Shouldn't we also watch where our eyes go when I'm walking past the billboard or when I'm passing the newsstand or browsing the net or chatting with that attractive colleague? Perhaps most seriously, they've rejected God's word. You can see it there in verse 12. You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. God revealed himself through his prophets who carried his word, but they rejected them, forcing the prophets to stop preaching. Now we delight in our evangelical heritage, and rightly so. Have we done it so much that we've actually stopped listening to the Bible because we're so deeply into our evangelical heritage, we think we've heard it all before? Do you ever find yourself, like I to my shame, find myself listening to a sermon and going, I'm so glad X is here, they really needed to hear that. And never thinking that maybe it couldn't hurt my ears either. The sentence is devastating. Verse 13, now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. Ending in verse 16, even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. No one escapes the Lion of Zion. If you want a fair God, praise God, we've got one. But we have to accept the consequences of that. Now please don't mishear me. Just because we do the same thing doesn't mean we can't hold our world to account. Doesn't even mean we can't hold Christian brothers and sisters to account for the things they do lovingly and gently correcting and maybe even rebuking them for their sins. But mustn't we always do so 
knowing and praying that Christ has died for them, that the judgment of God that is preached of here to the nations in Israel has been finally taken out on his own dear son, and that what I want for them is not to gloat, but to have them saved. And don't I, myself, when I think about this, mustn't I also always think to myself, have I done this? And if you have, well, isn't the cross of Christ and the judgment that was poured out there good news for you too? Because Christ died for all sins, even hypocrisy. It's never too late to give it up. It's never too late to say sorry for it. Because in the face of a just God, a fair God, isn't grace, isn't the cross the only place we can turn? When Jesus died, he didn't just die. He was mauled by the Lion of the Lord on our behalf so that we could be right with God. This isn't a message to pull up our socks, to be more good, to be less hypocritical. Now, this is a declaration of the, justice, the just judgment of God, which we as people who live on this side of the cross recognize as having happened in Jesus. How much more should we be motivated to justice, sexual purity, listening to God, all good works, as we heard in Titus, because of that fact and because the lion from Zion has spoken. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, your prophet Amos, through your inspiration, certainly pulls no punches and we feel that. We feel the weight of our sin. We feel the weight of the sin of this world. And we thank you that you are a just God, a fair God who punishes that sin, who won't let it go astray, who will defend your name and defend the the oppressed. And we are sorry for when we've been involved in that. We are sorry for when we have been guilty of that and yet been hypocritical by accusing others, not understanding that. Please forgive us. But most of all, thank you. Thank you that you are not just a God of justice, but a God of mercy. And in fact, a God whose justice and mercy kissed on the cross when your son died in our place. Please have that truth season every thought, every sentence and every action that we say, think and do in your name. Amen.